Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm with my good friend and person who's worked I've admired for much longer than I've known her because I've been reading her for 20 years. And that is Professor Christine Gilson. Christine, how are you? I'm fine. Nice sunny day in Sunny ish. In the two weeks I've been here, it's essentially had LA weather. Today I've been like yeah. Well, it's because the Olympics is over, so now we're back to normal. Quick rules, actually. Rumble. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Now, Christine, you, I got into the other night at a wonderful British Film Institute event, recognising 20 years of the film classics book series and the sight and sound poll for a thousand greatest film critics <laughs> of the century. But I didn't really get the chance to ask you what you're up to. Well, in fact, I've just finished um, a, a BFI television classic because they, when they launched the film classics and it had been going, I think, for about 10 years or so, people said, but what about television? As we television people tend to do. Um, and so they did set up a TV classics side of it, which is much smaller and I think it's been much trickier to decide what is a TV classic and should there be such things. But anyway, I've been writing um, on the BBC production of Bleak House, Charles Dickens' Bleak House, uh, which is to be published this month, um, the 27th of August, so uh, 27th of September. So just a so this couple is, of weeks from now, because exactly. we're, we're speaking in the second week of September 2012. Now, am I right in thinking that over the... Over 50 odd years of BBC TV, they've probably done a few Dickens adaptations. Yes, lots of Dickens adaptations, right from radio days. Pickwick Papers was a popular on the radio the trial of Mr. Pickwick. Um, but not so much Bleak House. That's, I think, only been done once before in 1985 with a very expensive production which apparently nearly bankrupted the drama department. So they had to stop doing classic serials for a while. Um, so, but this Bleak House was slightly different because it was uh, not the sort of Sunday afternoon classic serial approach. They wanted to make it for an EastEnders audience. So they made a lot of claims about make it, that Dickens would have been writing soaps if he'd been working now. Um, and they chopped it up into half-hour episodes that were put on immediately after EastEnders. Um, and that, that was, quite a lot of that was hype. You know, they wanted to sell it, the BBC. And we should say EastEnders is a it's very a popular very soap popular, opera going for 30 years? Uh, it started in 1985. So getting on, 27 yeah. years, that's on in the early evening. It's on in early evening, 7.30 to 8 o'clock. It started twice a week, it's now on, I think, four times a week, at least three. Um, and it carries big audiences. I mean, it, you know, it used to get sort of 15 to 20 million, now it's probably down to 10 or 12. But even so, that's a huge audience for drama. And so. this is a big year for Dickens. Hey, it's okay. Oh, right, thanks. It's okay. This is a big year for Dickens. It is. It's a bicentenary of his birth. So one of the things that... I mean, I've been writing about adaptations for about eight, nine years now, and I've really enjoyed it. But the basic, my basic rule was never really to look at the source, you know, the adaptations were films or television series in their own rise, and that endless comparison, oh, you know, they have, they've missed out this character, or they've got this wrong, 
just wasn't helpful. Um, and uh, that's worked. I've, you know, it's possible to write about adaptations without doing that comparison. But with Dickens, he's such an engaging and interesting person. And one of the Dickens scholars I read described him as a very early media personality. And it's true, you know, he, he was into copyrights, he was into adapting his own work, other people adapted his own work before he didn't finish it. So, like with Bleak House, he'd write the serial in 20 episodes coming out once a month. Um, and people would be putting on stage versions of it with an invented ending, because actually he, he didn't know how it was going to end. So, so he was a very, uh, he started off, it was a bit like, I mean I don't think it's like a soap exactly, but it's like a long series. Um, as he grew older, I think he began to, that became too nerve-wracking. Know, not to know how it was going to end. So I think he became more organised about the, the, the line of the narrative. But certainly in something like Oliver Twist, you know, how, where that would go was very much open to question. Thanks. Um, so that was a really interesting parallel with the way in which serials operate now in contemporary television. Um, so it was interesting to look at that. And he's just, and he led such an interesting life. All these, he nearly killed himself giving readings of his novel. So, you know, it became a great theatrical event as well as a publishing event. So he really did transform English literature. And so you can see why the BBC latched onto him from its early days. And um, with the bicentenary, we've got two new versions of Great Expectations and a version of Edwin Drood, along with people like Amanda Iannucci making programmes about Dickens and his influence. So it's been quite fun to be part of that. Sure, sure. And was Bleak House a success in terms of managing to keep the audience from East It didn't. Um, I, th I think, in a way, it was voiced by its own petard. Uh, so people say it wasn't a success because it couldn't keep that audience. But, on the other hand, it was getting audiences that would compare with The Bill, which is a popular ITV crime police series. So the classic serial EastEnders was just about keeping in touch with the competition next door on the commercial station. So I, I think that was a reasonable showing. Not, not necessarily in terms of absolute numbers, but in terms of reaching an audience that probably wouldn't, it wouldn't have got on BBC Two at nine o'clock at night, which is where the serious yeah. classic series. BBC One, very broadly speaking, because we have an audience in about 50 countries, is the BBC entertainment channel. It's the entertainment channel, that's what it sells itself as. And of course that's a bit controversial because it's a public services channel. You know, it's supported by the license fee. So all the critics, the Murdochs, etc., all say, oh, why is it doing quiz shows? Why is it doing light entertainment? Why is it doing popular drama? That should all be left to um, the marketplace. But the BBC rightly disputes that, and so it puts on um, programmes that are meant to appeal to a popular audience. So Bleak, I mean, which is rather nice with Bleak House, because it's a melodrama and a detective story. So in that sense, it really is like, you know, what the staples of popular television drama.
And as a cultural event, thinking about it aesthetically, but also thinking about it in terms of the political issues probably distributed races, yeah. did you think it was a success? Yes, I think it probably was. I mean, it allowed the BBC a, popu a, re a popular success. There's some evidence from websites and things like that that it attracted younger viewers. It, it also, though, was could be seen as educational. You know, it, it is a classic. Yeah. So it sort of combined entertainment and education in the way in which the BBC is supposed to do. And so Mark Thompson and Peter Fincham, who was then controller of BBC One, Mark Thompson was uh, director general of the BBC. Now off to run the New York now Times. Now off to run the New York Times, that's right. By the time this podcast goes out, he will have been fired as a whole right an out-and-out thing, without a doubt, but... <laughs> well, he, you know, who knows whether he'll be seen as a successful director general of the BBC, but um, he, they made speeches saying that Doctor Who, Bleak House, and a four-part series of Shakespeare on Shakespeare, modern, updated Shakespeare plays, yeah. were all, around that time, successes for the BBC. And this was the period where they were renegotiating re the charter that allows them to broadcast. So very important to be seen to be successful with audiences and with politicians at the point where the next license fee, the next stage of the license fee is being agreed for five years, ten years. Right, right, right. So I think Bleak House was successful in that sense and I think it was also interesting, contemporary, new for the classic serial audience. So there were some people who hated it. There were Dickens scholars who said, but where is the fog? Because Bleak House starts famously with fog and there wasn't any in the serial. Uh, but on the whole, I think it, you know, I'm going to a conference next week when I'll talk to adaptation scholars about it and I think they are interested in it. So it made its mark. And did you enjoy writing it? Yes, it was good fun. It was a short book. It's, um, if readers are interested in buying it, it's, it's a good read. It's a very good read. Nice sure and it short. I think it's around 30,000 words, something like that. Yeah, and you get, pictures, that you get pictures. You get uh, illustrations. So that was good fun. What sort of research did you do? I did quite a lot of research into Dickens, because that wasn't an area I knew, though. Um, but I also did some thinking about television drama. Um, I had some, a look at some work on US, you know, the way in which US television has now made quality HBO style this serials. This is the golden age of US, the golden age of US television, television drama. which I'm a little sceptical about. But, uh, I subscribe um, to that theory. It's, well, I'm sure it's true for American audiences. I just think that British... Uh, writers about British television should be careful not to uh, overlook what's happening in Britain because they're so obsessed with lots or... Oh, I'm not saying that. I'm not thinking about it in contrast with any other country. I'm thinking yeah. about it in the context of US history. Yes. The so-called golden age of US television drama, one-shot stuff, when you look at it now, it's crass. It's boring, slow, poorly done, sexist, racist, and utterly uninteresting because it's one-off live drama with dead shows. Yeah. Uh, when you compare it with the production values of Showtime or HBO at their best, then that's another matter. Yeah. I think network television drama like Lost is as boring as it's ever right. been. I'm, right. I'm, I'm interested in commercial free yeah. drama that yeah. is written for white liberal elites. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you see, that that's right. And so, of course, I mean, and in a way, that that's what drives the executives at BBC One now, because our television critics are, you know, we're obsessed with The Wire, for instance, yeah. which they kept saying was the best thing that ever been made. And maybe it is, but the fact of the matter is that hardly anyone saw it on British television. It was shown originally on Channel 4, I think, late night. BBC Two picked it up, etc., etc. So to have, to keep telling BBC One that it's got to produce television like The Wire is just crazy. Sure. Well, I mean, the point is that the political economy underpinning a program like The Wire in the United States has no relationship whatsoever to the political economy underpinning BBC One. It is about a niche, white, wealthy, urban audience. Yes whose tastes are underwritten by African-American and Latino men who like those wealthy white elites yeah. by HBO and Showtime premium packages. But in their case, by the law to watch boxing and, and ultra, ultra fighting. Doesn't HBO have some pornography in Not somewhere? really. Showtime used to have right. uh, softcore porn, right. but it's gone very up now. It used to make softcore porn. David Duchovny was uh -huh. a key presenter yeah. for me. Yeah. on some of these, but no, the, the, the key element is that in amongst paying for this, the premium access, there are also lots of pay-per-view packages, yes. Yes. which are to watch black and brown men beat one another up wearing shorts yes. and boots, yeah. and black and brown men pay lots of money to watch, watch that. that, and they have to underwrite the tastes of those who want to see these other things. Yeah. But because there are no commercials, but nor is there a general viewing ratings push in the way that applies in the latter case yeah. to the BBC, yeah. you can have relatively unpopular programs and it doesn't matter yeah. on HBO and Showtime in the way that it does yeah. on the BBC. Exactly. Well, it does now, of course. What, what um, people writing drama now for the BBC precisely complain about is that in the old days, and it just it, it depends how old they are, where these old days are, you know. But quite often it's back in the 70s, 80s, where they where people could producers, writers could develop a program, and they were just given some money and sent off. Off you go. Off you go. Now they they complain bitterly now about um, commissioners uh, sitting on their shoulder. Everything has got to be tested against you know, kind of viewing figures or focus groups or, yeah. you know, and that they aren't given the time to bed a program in. So I, I think that, yes, that, I think that is a bit of a turn yeah. The other important difference is that however good or bad writing, directing, acting, producing of US commercial television is, it has to make four times the amount of program for each series that HBO or Showtime yes. And one of the reasons, guess what, why Monty Python and Forty Towers were good is they didn't have to make 20 hours a year of it. Exactly. Or 25 right. yes. or 30. Yes. So, guess yeah. what, if people yeah. have to do that much, it's yeah. not as good. <laughs> well, of course that is, I mean, the, the producers of Bleak House compared making Bleak House to making a soap opera. Uh -huh. That they were doing it in a very short amount of time, right. that they, you know, were uh, filming under pressure, that they had huge cars, people coming in and out. But of course, when you look at it, they were only doing this for like nine months or so. Or the 
writing and it all doing it was like 18 months. Not year after year after year, you know, for four programmes a week, two hours of television. Like a soap opera. Like a soap opera. Who were also making it on less money. So although the comparisons were there, I mean, Bleak House actually had a great set of London, which actually looks a bit like Deadwood, you know, where in Deadwood they're walking around the streets and people are still building things and yeah. signs are going up and it has this vaguely Victorian Western feel. Yeah. Well, Bleak House London is a bit like that. It was filmed in a farm out just outside London, old rundown farm building. So that side of it was quite was was quite fun. So you've inspired me to watch it, but definitely to read the book. Oh yes, the book's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, when we say the book, of course, we're referring to your book, not poor old Dickens. Oh, right, book. yes. No, you have to be right. Yes. So this conference you're speaking at, is that a, a Dickens event specifically? No, the, it's a bit... Breaking into the world of Dickens is very hard. Um, no, this is a conference for the Association of Adaptation Studies, which is basically this little world of people studying an ad adaptation that I joined about eight, nine years ago. And it was a little scary because it's... It, it basically, at that point, I think, was dominated by people teaching English literature, quite often in the States, but teaching, fil you know, using film adaptations to discuss Shakespeare or Dickens or yeah. Tennessee Williams or something. Um, but it's been expanding and growing and becoming a lot more interesting. There's a much, with the whole convergence, issues around convergence, have taken off in the world of adaptation studies. So it's not just from page to screen, which was the classic. Now they're looking at comic books and uh, the interaction between television and online stuff, looking at um, theatre, actually, which nobody was really looking at. A bit more um, like what Tony Bennett and Janet Wollacott did all those years ago. All those years ago, much more. Cultural studies has been quite influential in a funny kind of way, yeah. um, in a variety of ways. And things like a book I was reading by Jim Collins about publishing. Um, so that the, the idea that used to drive me mad is that somehow books were produced in this holy way by artists in the garret, whereas all film and all television was corrupted by money. And it used to drive me mad that publishing wasn't seen as a, an industry. An industry. Yeah. Well, now that's changing. So, you know, there's some good stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in other words, the original text is no longer necessarily the principal entity. Exactly, that's right. you measure. Yes, it used to be the, the, the source text. But, that, but of course, the whole post-structuralist, post-modernist stuff blasted that whole so people began to realise that even, you know, so you had something like, if you were studying a film of Robert E. Crusoe, you had to go back to the novel. But then you realise that the novel itself was a product of all these other sources and texts. Now that can be taken a bit far, I think. At some point you have to stop and say, okay, you know, all these whirling texts actually come together to make something. Yeah. They're tissues of quotation and yet. Yeah. They right. Form and style do matter. Yes, and a particular, a particular uh, approach, you know, does exist. Uh, but it's been very good for adaptation studies. So that whole thing about it wasn't as good as the book has been thrown open. Plus, of course, lots of books are written with a view to they being sold into film markets yep. or television. Markets. Well, one of the things I wrote about in my book on adaptation is called now a major motion picture, which I now think is a great title. A major motion now a major motion picture. Sensational. 
um, was about Edna Ferber, and uh, who of course was a novelist and uh, worked with Gerald Kaufman, the playwright. Uh, but clearly was writing her books because she knew they were going to be made into films. From Cimarron in the 20s to Giant and Beyond in the 50s. And I think her novels are great, but they have this amazing cinematic detail. She's always describing them. Um, so it goes right back, these things, you know, people think that the convergence of everything into everything is new, is new no, no, no. but actually Excuse there's me. lots of connections. For, yeah. Someone called Faulkner, yes, someone exactly. called Chandler, a guy named Fitzgerald. That's right. Uh, the exactly. fact that, you know, going, going way back, that originally all the Hollywood playwrights were women. And yep. uh, screenwriters, I Yes, say. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Lizzie Frankie. Yeah. 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 That's right. But also that the days in which not just truly canonical US writers of the kind I've just mentioned would come across, but every common or garden playwright from yeah. Broadway would be angry by the late 30s for an invitation out there. That's right. We're, and of course, actually, lots of these adaptations of books went through a play and then to the yes. screen. Right. And that included even things like Pride and Prejudice, no less, where the, the MGM version of Pride and Prejudice actually is from the play of Pride and Prejudice that ran for a long time in the state. And if you think and of radio musical, as well. radio, radio, absolutely. 10, and, and we always, you know, like in the 70s and 80s when we were looking at musicals, Richard Dyer's book, you know, work on musicals, we saw them as a, a cinema, you know, they seemed like perfect cinema. But of course they were, you know, shows. So in their way, they were an showboat, you know, fantastic. Mark Brothers, you know, finally home stage show right across the country So those interactions have been going on, it's just that we as, I think film and television studies scholars were very keen to sort of set up, we were working on a new discipline and we wanted to be different we wanted to establish objects of study that were not, that were different from what was happening certainly in English or, um, uh, or drama. And so we didn't look for connections. It's interesting, isn't it? At one level, you're making an argument for what used to be called medium specificity. <laughs> I'm saying you can't just, as the old adaptation people did, take literature's categories and redeploy them to film and television. On the other, you're saying well, all of us have to look to our mark and consider these things uh, in ways that will defy the notion of the original text, even as we want to go through all the right authenticating procedures to establish the travel of the text, yeah. where it's gone to, what's happened to it, how it's been transformed yeah. and how it's changed yeah. things and it's alighted. Well, I think medium specificity is becoming one of the really interesting things to think about because you know, in one sense, you could say that everything is now just is going through this digital, you know, transformation. That's where most people are getting their information, what have you. On the other hand, there's a huge boom in live, in liveness. You know, people are, want to go to music, to comedy, to theatre. Theatre is developing in really interesting ways to make itself different from, you know, the 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 uh, from 
the televised play. Um, so medium specificity is, is, I think, a really interesting phenomenon. So, the 49 Steps yep. uh, renamed Hitchcock's 39 Steps to make it sell better. Yeah. He's around the world as a successful, as a successful play, play. Based on, you know, the adaptation, of course, of Buckingham's Novel. Yes. Uh, but the way in which it now gets authorised yes. is Well, I think the move of film into drama, film into theatre, is really interesting. And again, I mean, I wrote about my beautiful laundrette, and one of that film's successes was that it actually got turned into a play that toured for, it was a kind of young people's uh, theatre group that put it on, and it was really fascinating to see it done as a play. On the other hand, there's some very weird things. I did see a play on the waterfront, which was really strange. You kind of kept wanting Marlon Brando to turn up, and he didn't, you know. So you kind of thought, well, what is the point of this if things on the waterfront? So I think there, there are really interesting questions about what happens in what, what media and what promises. What, what does the media promise you to make you want to engage with it? What about critical circulation? I ask this because you know I've just moved here after 20 years in the US, and as you may be aware, drama, film, and TV critics have just been fired all the yeah. time in the US. There is more and more and more film, television, and drama criticism, but it's done by unpaid writers yeah. online. Uh, newspapers have just done away with these people. So have TV stations and radio stations. What, what's the situation here? Well, as I understand it, the, the critics are still there. Um, and indeed, at the University of Glasgow, where I was teaching until recently, we ran a very successful program on film journalism. Um, because, you know, there were lots of students interested in actually learning the techniques and the um, nitty-gritty of, of writing about film journalistically. I think the question is how long, though, you know, newspapers, I still buy my daily newspaper because I'm a creature of habit, but there may not be enough of me for very much longer. So it, I, I think it's more a question of whether those, uh, I think those critics are still there and still actually are seen as important but how long they'll survive is another matter. I mean, one, I don't know if you've come across um, Mark Commode on radio. I mean, radio, I think, has emerged as I've heard more important. Really he's, he's on Radio 2, and he and Simon, somebody or other, um, have, have a very engaging um, film review program. Double Act. Double Act, which does seem to work. And of course with radio going on the internet, you know, that's good business. Yeah. So I think there is still a, um, a feeling that, that the response of critics can still be important to people. Certainly I think filmmakers think that. Um, Do you still to have people like, I'm thinking more of drama here now, Ken Tyner, being awful terrible and making and breaking supposedly whole cultural movements when they appear on the television to talk about something yeah. they've written in the paper, well, for example. I think much, I, I think Kentanum was a bit of a one-off. Uh -huh. And I think that the London critics have been much less powerful than I understand it the New York ones are. 
Um, but I do think what you could say is that a, a period of, that's really started, I think, with Channel 4 in the 80, early 80s, a period in which television actually offered a platform for people to talk about art or theatre or film, that has rather gone. Um, and that those kind of review programmes, things like Late Night Review on BBC Two or um, The Late Show on, on Channel 4, or programmes that Channel... I mean, Channel 4 had a programme called The Media Show, which was precisely about television and radio and the media and journalism. Now, I think you could certainly say one of the criticisms I would make of public service broadcasting in the UK now is that it is right, it's narrow-minded about what people might be interested in. Let me give you an example. Uh, as a far-distant citizen, uh, I've been listening to podcasts from the BBC and The Guardian, right. known officially in this country, by the way, this is the Grawling ad. Uh, thank you very much. Christine, do you like something? That's that little cake. Oh, a little sweet a little cake. A little cake. cake. That would be nice. What kind of cake do you have? A little chocolate. Have you got a chocolatey cake? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I can get you the menu, though. You can have a look. Menu should be everywhere. So, two of the programmes that I listen to are. Both, one on radio from Radio 4, which is the media show or something like it with Steve yes. Hewlett. Yeah. And one from the Brawniard, which is called something also like the media show yeah. with John Plunkett, previously with Matt Wells. Uh, both of these programmes are very helpful if you are not living in the country and you want to understand the media system. They're not very helpful if you want to understand the textuality of the media. No. They're helpful at a policy level. But there is a distinct absence of academics, other than superannuated hacks, yeah. who are now on the university payroll. Yes. And many of the superannuated hacks on the university payroll are very smart and very yeah. interesting. But uh, I'm, I'm amazed at the absence of the very many yeah. people who can talk about textuality, views, political economy. And I'm listening to remarkably well-informed comments on some topics, and unbelievably ill-informed comments yeah. on others, yeah. because of what journalists can and can't yeah. easily find the time to yeah. do. Yeah. Well, I think that's true, and, and part of what I was saying that some of those platforms have disappeared. I mean, you know, academics used to go on to the media show when it was on Channel 4. And I even participated in things like, you know, the 50 best soaps in the world or something like that, that Channel 4 often did. Um, but people like Robert Murphy would go on and talk about British cinema or... More for an editor of uh, many books on... Yes, on, you know. But that, but I'm afraid to say that television has become more fixated on getting celebrities or, well, very minor celebrities, actually, to do these kind of things. You say so, they'd rather have Jordan than Laura Murphy. Somehow, somehow they would. Surprising as it may be. Um, but also, you know, they, they, they used to have people like Judith Williamson, who was a really good film critic for the New Statesman. She would introduce films on BBC Two, I think. a great book called Decoding Advertisements. Advertisements, yeah. that's right. So there was a little moment when that was allowed. Now, and, and indeed, we now have BBC Four, which makes some really good documentaries. But even they seem reluctant to use... Um, academics. Now maybe they think we're too, you know, that we speak a different language and I yeah. think, you know, one has some sympathy with that. I think some 
um, you know. People like Robert Murphy and you. Yes, we deliberately don't. I mean, I've always tried to be accessible and and also to engage with whatever audience you're kind of talking to. Um, so I think it's a shame that they don't use, they, they don't draw on that kind of knowledge. To sometimes, you know, sometimes you get contacted, um, but that's re I would say that's really dried up, and I think it's partly because they'd rather have com comedy stars and um, and journalists, sort of entertainment journalists, are the ones who get on, who are presumably, I would think, fairly cheap, um, but are deemed to bring up some kind of audience with them. Listening, for example, to the coverage of the Leveson Inquiry, which is the inquiry into the way in which the tabloid press in Britain have engaged in illegal activity to ensnare people in gossip traps via tapping into their phones and other activities with the collusion of various members of the police and other agencies. But the people talking about that inquiry again and again yes. are people who are hacks. Yes. There's nobody capable of talking about other media, other countries, yeah. history, going back beyond yeah. their own born of their lifetimes. Yeah. Amazing to me. It, well, it is. I mean, and that's particularly striking because actually there has been quite a strong movement among academics working on the political economy of the media to actually generate interest and, and a response to the Leveson Inquiry itself. So people like um, Natalie Fenton and Des Friedman at Goldsmiths College, Julian Petley at Brunel, have been Lewis engaged with Justin Lewis, Lewis at Cardiff. So, th so there are people who are eminently capable of looking at what's happened, giving some historical context, uh, you know, who know the ins and outs of it, and who would speak very directly on. You know. The one time I've heard academics on Steve Hewlett's program, it was Natalie Fenton right. and Annabelle Strabini, and he interrupted them every time they spoke. Yeah. As he does almost all women who meet Right, yes, yes, well that may well be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get back to Scotland for a moment? Yes. Because you, you mentioned you've just finished teaching at Glasgow, yes. and you also mentioned the thriving nature of the film journalism, film criticism yes. program. What's the sort of international scene there as opposed to down here in London? I ask that because we've just had the Edinburgh Film of Edinburgh TV Festival. Yeah. Famously, Elizabeth Murdoch got up and, you know, kissed up to Daddy and kicked <laughs> down to Junko Junior. <laughs> sibling rivalry, yeah. <laughs> well, Daddy just did write a cheque for an awful lot of money for, you know, number one daughter's... Uh, <laughs> TV production yeah. heads. Thank you, Daddy. Yeah. But she wants Daddy to make her the you know sole heir. Yeah. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Edinburgh is the site of very famously and, and more in our field and lots of film and television debates intellectually yeah. from the 70s yeah. on. So in general, what's it like in Scotland intellectually around the media top topics, including textual issues, yeah. compared to say southeastern England or elsewhere? Yeah. Well, I think that Scotland is distinctive. It has obviously we're talking about far fewer universities. Uh, but it has its own film and television industry uh, based in Glasgow and to a lesser extent in Edinburgh. So one of the features has been a real engagement between the industry and um, academics uh, uh, so that um, I found it really easy to get people who are running their own production companies or work to BBC Scotland to come and talk to my students. Um, and so there's, there's been quite a, there, there is for instance um, an engagement with or, or a critique 
of the cultural industries and that whole creative industries stuff going on in Glasgow at the university there. Uh, Stirling University is also really... It, yes, exactly. I mean, so we don't just take it as being a good thing. Um, Philip Schlesinger and Raymond Boyle and Gillian Doyle are there. Oh, they do great. Um, whereas on the other hand, at St Andrews is St Andrews is very posh. Um, so it doesn't do television, Home of golf. but it does film. Um, Home of golf, and uh, so th so its focus of study has been um, alternatives to Hollywood, um, world cinema. You know that kind of engagement. Dino Leodonova's program. Edinburgh has put together a kind of film program out of a number of different uh, departments, including music and English and sociology. So that they've been trying to sort of work in an interdisciplinary way, literally in the institution. Um, back at Glasgow, we. The, the old screen, the screen is still at Glasgow, the journal screen, still sits in the building and uh, the department there has a long tradition of textual analysis, an emphasis on textual analysis and of linking together film and television, which is unusual these days. The, that, that duo that I was so familiar with um, has come un, uncoupled, as it were. Um, so, so that's a bit unusual there. So I think Scotland's an interesting place to be, particularly because, of course, if Scotland votes for independence, then that has a dramatic effect on the media, um, journalism and the press, but particularly television. BBC. And the BBC, because at the moment the BBC, the um, telecommunications is a UK responsibility. And if Scotland run, has to run its own television system from its own license fee, that could be quite interesting. Good luck, so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, they'll all have great big, you know, broadband systems that can, uh, you know, it's it's actually much easier now. Twenty years ago, I, I think Scottish independence could have founded on the loss of. British television. Now, of course, you can get British television anywhere in the world, so it's less of an issue. Can I follow up with you on this notion of there being a radical decoupling of film and television studies compared to when yeah. you and I were young? Sure. <laughs> I'm interested in it because for you and me and many of our friends, they want to continue, neither is superior mm. to the other necessarily. Yeah. Uh, and that was always a point of contention with some, but it does seem to me from an insider or recent insider's perspective a lot to learn. There is more of a disarticulation yes. than used to be the case. I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, back in the, in the 70s and 80s, uh, people now think that screen was a journal of film theory, and in many ways it was. But if you actually look at it, there was an incredible amount on television of all sorts of kinds of writing. Jim you know. uh, Stephen Heath. Exactly, that's right. And stuff about, you know, what quality television should be, the arrival of Channel 4, screen reflected that absolutely. So, and, and my own experience of working on soaps came out of what was called a women and film group, which was set up by the BFI set. So, uh, so I, you know, for me to work on television and film was very, um, was kind of obvious really, so, and was helpful because there were, because their differences reflected on each other. 
that you know there were things that seemed more relevant to television but then you could look at film in that way and you could kind of reverse them but i think that you know that was a moment when the whole disciplinary everything was being shaken off and and one of the things that's happened is, of course, that film studies and, to a lesser extent, television studies and media studies have had to be established in universities. That's where it's gone. Um, and so that means that, that people have to specialise. And you see that in PhDs. I mean, I didn't have a PhD. Most of the people who worked in film and television didn't get a PhD. None so, of the interesting you, people have No, and you had to learn about all sorts of things. So, for, I don't well, know, I obviously. Stuck. The other night we were, we were both at this event. Thank you very much. Did you have your own? No, but could I have a flat white coffee? Yeah, please? of course. Nice. Anything else? No, I'd like I'll a keep them in. Cup of tea, please. Cup of tea. English breakfast? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. This very struck me the other night, uh, without naming names, that there were a couple of, I'll name two names, a couple of people on the panel, Laura Mulvey, already mentioned, and Ed Baskin. Yeah. Uh, who had things to say that were quite materialistic, quite political. And then there were, you know, bright young men on the panel who presumably think politics begins and ends in the House of Commons. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just couldn't believe, I thought, if nothing's been achieved whatsoever, <laughs> nothing ever happened. Well, did it or didn't it? Um, yes, I, you see, I would, I would say that is very much in relation to what happened to film studies. Okay. Um, or, or a bit of film studies. I, it, it, it's very, it really annoys me still, a kind of the hierarchies that there are and the way in which film is still seen in some ways as being above it all. So you, I don't think you'd have got that same discussion about television. Uh, you know, because so, television is like rooted in politics of the home, of the family, of politics. You know, it's sort of rooted in any kind of politics that you can think of, um, including the environment, which I think you been working on so you know effectively whereas film still has this kind of above it all sense um, and I think the BFI buys into that um, you know which is why when we started I was saying that the, the, the TV studies classics came about because the BFI didn't think of them because they thought of film classics um, so it takes other people to say, but what about television? Um, but on the other hand, I think there is work going on in film studies about context, about um, what gets made, about representation. Um, it's just that sort of, in a way, classical film theory, which was the founding stone of many film studies departments in the US, even more than in the UK, has, I think, been steadily, in a way, moving away from the uh, where media studies can be. And, and it's interesting, I mean, that many film, or some film studies scholars, will not see themselves as part of media studies. You know, they're, they're above all that. Media studies is, they, I think they believe media studies is dumbed down, Mickey Mouse subject, just like the politicians try and tell us. Um, and film studies people kind of think that. 
so they don't want it. So film isn't a medium and can't be. It has to be studied separately. Going back to the Women and Soap Opera mm. British Film Institute group you talked about and the way that that was inspiring for you, without wishing too much to sound like people who are mythologizing their own past, <laughs> criticizing silly contemporary, yeah. <laughs> always a risk whenever I'm involved, yeah. I should say, can you take us back a bit to was in that group, what yes. were trying to do and how it helped you? Yes, well, I, in fact, I, I went back to it a year or so ago to try and look at it because some younger feminists asked me to contribute to a conference, like, yeah. what can I say? So I went back and had a look. And it was rather remarkable, I have to say, the, B, the, the BFI library down at Berkhamsted had this pathetic file of undated, gestetnered minutes of meetings, you know, and there we were. You mean the girls it. weren't organised properly with an amanuensis as a minute taker? I think that was an issue, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think there was a bit of... Well, the whole group was set up and run by um, three, really three women at the British Film Institute. So that was Christine Gledfield, Nikki North, who's still at the British Film we Institute. We saw her the other night. We saw her the other night, and Angela Martin. And they were really the people who kept it going. And they had an institutional place in the British Film Institute, um, in the education department. But no, we met monthly for about, um, perhaps it's hard to tell when we stopped, because of course there's no meet, no minutes of meeting saying this is the end. And so we trail away, no, we trail off after I think about three or four years. But well, I, what I found was interesting was how hard it, we were doing something we felt were new. We were looking at, trying to look at television within the context of a feminist perspective. And there were a lot of debates within us about what that might mean and what we should be looking at and should we do psychoanalysis or not? Was Coronation Street the right vehicle? Uh, a TV soap on ITV started in, in 1960. Started in 1960, still going still today. In fact, if you're in a Manchester bar and you're with a group of women, they'll say, if they see an actor from it, oh, I've got to get his autograph for my mother. Right, yes. <laughs> and then you don't see them for the rest of the evening. <laughs> Still popular. Anyway, that's what we, we ended up very early studying that, but at the same time yeah. we were doing all this reading. So we were supposed to read Althusser and Lacan and Brecht and Lukács. Somebody was very keen on Lukács. Which I have to say, was a, we read in bits of, with limited understanding. But we also were supposed to be reading Woman's Own and Women, which were the popular magazines of the day, to, for a kind of women's discourse in a way, yeah. women's vocabulary. You know. So it was a really difficult project. And also, it wasn't like you started this and gave yourselves three years of study and then you do something with it. Because once we got going, people asked us to do things. So in like the first year, we spoke at um, two or three women's conferences and and indeed we were invited to the Edinburgh Television Festival to speak about the project. So we joined with the Keel group that was led by Richard Dyer. And so off went Jean McCrindle, Terry Lovell and Richard Dyer to speak to television executives and producers about our study of Coronation Street. 
and um, what, what we said is still imprinted. So, you know, it was very interesting to look back and see how... Lovely, thank you. How... Thank you very much. Limited. It was really interesting to see what thin ice we were skating over, you know, how limited our knowledge was, how ambitious we were. Um, and also, I think we did do quite a lot within, you know, given we were all working. I, I think I don't think there was anyone at that point in the group who was working full time in, you know, academia. What were you doing? It's, uh, I was working in at that point. I was working in local government. Uh, I think that was before I went to work for the trade union. So, so yes, I had a full time local government job, and I was teaching the BFI evening class. Or going, yes, teaching them at that point. But other people were doing, you know, uh, other bits of teaching. Um, you know, maybe one or two were full-time teaching. But the point is, something but about it was what you were doing was extra. It was extra. It was outside. Something about what you were doing really excited lots of other people. Yeah. Not all of whom were either feminists or soap opera. Well, there were hardly any soap opera followers, really. Um, it, there were, I mean, it's at the same time, we were like a, a sort of feminist group, so there were some connections across to feminist conscious, consciousness raising groups. There is one minute where it says, um, Sheila Rowbottom's group has expressed an interest in meeting with us. I don't recall that we ever did. But, but for also, I mean, I was a member of the Labour Party at that point, so we did take, um, I did talk to the Labour Party women's section that I was in about it, and somebody like Jo Spence, for instance, and with her photographs, I remember her coming to our Labour Party women's group to talk about the photographs she took of herself and her image. You know. she, she did a wonderful book. Uh, maybe Pluto Press yes. of her photography. That's right, which I can't remember but Google it, you'll find her. Yeah. Um, so there was that notion of, of, of sort of women's, what could you do with women's culture? How could you discuss it, analyse it, take it out there, think about it, put it on the agenda? That, that was around. But it was very difficult. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It wasn't that we were. It wasn't that we had one mission. It, there were all sorts of arguments and debates about how to do it or or what should be done. One of the words you just used really struck me, and it was ambitious. My guess is that this kind of ambition is the kind that applied to many people I knew from that era and later, which is not ambition for personal and professional advancement, but for ideas and politics. Yeah. Is that yeah. right, or have I got well, that wrong? No, I think that's right, although I think it was always ex expressed sort of through education. You know, I mean, the people that were involved in the Society for Education in Film and Television in the 70s and 80s, many of them were secondary school teachers or teachers in further education. So part of the politics was to reform the, the exam system. And if you think about what happened there, you know, we were they were after a media studies exam at 16 or 18, whatever. And now in the UK today, we're talking about, you know, making English harder for secondary school pupils or restricting, the, the Conservative government is restricting the recognition of qualifications to 
the basics, English, history, maths, you know, so that whole battle about media studies and media literacy, it does feel as if we've gone backwards, but it's important that that was part of it. It wasn't just about, you know, how the gaze, the male gaze, appeared on the screen. It was about how 14-year-olds might, uh, and indeed 8-year-olds, might be given access to... Um, I mean, semiotics came in to debates about, about photography and film and media through the BFI's work on um, bar, how BART bar might be used in photography to discuss it with ten-year-olds. Right. You know, so mythology. It's highly applied. So it's really but applied. It but it wasn't about, I want to get a promotion. Oh, no. Well, who knows? I mean, lots of people did get promotion after all, yes, without their PhD. I guess I'm just thinking about people who were not necessarily seeing themselves as academics, but who wanted no. to be theoretical and political and produce interesting yeah. pieces of writing. Yeah. That's what drove yeah. That's what drove I mean, that's what drove it, because, because there wasn't a... Uh, for most of most of us, couldn't dream, I don't think, of a career path in, you know, media studies, film, television studies, whatever it is. For for most people who were going to SEFT AGM, which after all could attract 200 people. I mean, a SEFT weekend school on stars, say, or the musical, could attract 150 people to come along and hear, you know, Colin McCabe and. Whoever else. Uh, so you know, we're talking big numbers for what were you know these were people giving up their weekend. Um, so you you didn't think of it as being well, I, you know, this will. I mean, I think young academics today, for instance, I I discuss with members of my staff when I was at Glasgow at Goldsmiths about how to get make their voice heard, how to use conferences, you know, what to write and where. Not in a, a way of censorship, but in a way of helping them get on. But, you know, the, it, it's a different kind of work, you know? ways of value yeah. life. Yeah, which isn't to say that there are lots of young academics who really do get involved, I think, in the politics of what they're interested in. I mean, I certainly have known of, of feminists who are doing work, engaged work in communities of, of people getting involved in the Leveson Inquiry, etc., etc. It, it's more dispersed and it's less, it's almost seen, I'm, I think people have anxieties about, should I do that? Or will that be seen as working against me somehow when it comes to promotion to a senior lecturer, a reader, a professor? Can we, in the time left of us, just a few minutes, I wonder if you could focus a little bit more on your trajectory. You mentioned that at the time of the women's study group on soap operas, you were working in local government. Yes. What were you doing in local government in then you went on to the uni. <laughs> yes. Well, I, at university, of course, I, I studied basically history, American studies, and American literature. Um, and so, I, I, after 
so that after all that studying, which included a couple of years of PhD, which I didn't get, I then uh, came back to London and got a job, which was a basic clerical job in local government, in social services. And so I sort of stayed in local government for about 10 years, which was the time when I was going to BFI summer schools and, and doing the evening classes. And then I, I was a trade union representative and got a full-time job as a, in the end, a negotiator at national level. Um, so I, I did that until from, I, w I was in the trade union, working full-time as a trade union negotiator from the early 80s until about 1992. This helps explain why you're not precious about so, the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you're... So, but my women's soap opera book came out ninety one. So that was all written. All that writing was done while I was. Yes. Yes. That must be it. You see, if you look at that book, you can see it because actually I'd read very little about soap opera. And certainly, but I talked to it about it to loads of people, including my, you know, friends at work who were social workers and people in trade unions and the health service, you know, employees that I negotiated with were greatly entertained by the notion I was writing about soap opera. So I talked to lots of people about it and that's where that book's strength in a way comes from. I knew far more about those programs than anyone could. Thank God VCR was invented. You see, I started writing about television before the video. So suddenly, it's 20 years ago, and you make a move into academia. I moved into academia. Well, two things happened. One, the Tory government got elected in 1992, when it wasn't supposed to be. And secondly, the union I was working for amalgamated with another union, two unions. So I kind of struggled my way, or not struggled, I worked my way up to, uh, you know, quite a good position in the union, particularly as a woman. And, and this was in Nalgo, the Health and Local Government Nationalised Industry Union. And then three more, the three unions amalgamated, and I could see what happens in those amalgamations is lots of people come in at the top, um, you know. And I thought, do I want to spend another, you know, more years negotiating and and ha having this total change at the top of the union. And then this job at Goldsmiths got advertised, and so I applied, rather to my amazement, and I think to theirs, they appointed me, and, um, and there I was. And, and I remember, um, I think they did see me coming, because they appoint I was appointed as a lecturer. But pretty early on, it became clear that they they could see that I, I could. They kept saying, "Oh, you've got experience with managing employees or being a human relations person. Wouldn't you like to be head of the So I was. <laughs> And what took you up to Glasgow? I uh, went to Glasgow in 2002, so I, about 10 years. Well, promotion, to be honest. Um, 10 years in one, 10 years in another? Yeah, that's right. Sense. Made sense. Um, but uh, Glasgow was a really good place to go if you were interested in textual analysis. You see, at Goldsmiths, Gold I got this incredibly good boost for education in cultural studies. All these things I kind of knew about, I learned about properly. You know, by sitting in on lectures by Dave Morley and you know, other stuff, um, and had great students, you know, really good fun students. But 
it, to go to go to Glasgow was to engage with texts in a different way with people who who kind of were immensely engaged with the textual feel of an image and movement and narrative and you know would stand around in corridors discussing the live televising of the Millennium Show, you know, and the moment when Mandela went into, when, when they went into Mandela's prison cell or something, and would discuss that about how shots were used to create that sense of excitement. And that was a different engagement from the Goldsmiths one. So that was, it was good fun. It was also much easier, I mean, you know, to move from a department of, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 people, to a department of, well, there were 10 of us doing, less than 10, doing film and television. It was kind of easy. Do you think that bifurcation that you've just outlined, we've been discussing in passing, has to apply? What, between textual? Yeah, the kinds of discussions around the water cooler. Uh, no, I don't think it does. I think, but I think you need balances of interest. I, th I do think there is a hostility to textual analysis by certain kinds of media scholars. You know, people who just cannot see it. Why should this be remotely relevant? The political economy, you know, the industry. Uh, you know, why should you? Why do you sit in front of the television screen as I've done? You know, watching people acting when you could just go off and talk to them you know why do you want to look at what setting and location do it within the image when you could go and talk to a set designer well you know I, I think you I think what you see in the image is really important part of the pleasures and enjoyment as well as about issues of representation and politics but some people don't get that and so he, it, it was it was nice to be in a place where you didn't have to endlessly argue about the important role of the text. I mean, some of those arguments can be very friendly. I've had, you know, some, some anthropologists of television are much more interested in what sits on top of the television than they are in what's on television. And I kind of understand that. I think, you know, they have a point. You know, where you put the television in the room and what what statues and photographs and what have you. Of course, you can't do that now with a flat screen. No. What, what objects you surround the television with is important. But at the same time, I actually think it's really crucial what EastEnders is doing uh, with all those images and um, uh, emotions. So, no, I, do, I think the two, I think for a decent analysis of cinema, television, anything that involves aesthetics and engages the, emo the emotions, you need all those things. Um, and you can't just say, oh, well, you know, the political economy will explain it all, because it doesn't. Definitely not. What about from the other side? From the side that says, or doesn't say, text only matters. Mm. Why, do you talk, why talk to anybody? Why look at the materiality yes. of the Yes. Well, I think that is the other side of it. And I found that, um, particularly when I went to over to look at adaptations and you find English I found English literature scholars that uh, well, well I mean the problem was in a way that they they could produce some wonderful textual analysis I mean 
J. Hillis Miller on Dickens has to be read to be believed. But, but if you just look at Dickens without that publishing history, without that sense of the society he was writing for and who was reading it, you kind of get it wrong. So many English scholars get television wrong because they don't know enough about television. And I think it's true to say that probably television scholars do get English literature wrong quite often because they don't know enough about publishing or writing or how that works. So, um, I mean, if, if for instance you look at why cereals and soaps work as they do. I think it's helpful to have an understanding of how the television industry works all the time to get that sense of engagement and re-engagement um, and how that came about. But it's not enough. I mean, I've just been reading Jason Jacobs on Deadwood and I think he does a really good account which pays homage to the producers of Deadwood, um, David Milch's it, the writer and only the getter. But at the same time, Jason himself is making his own readings, which are enormously productive of Deadwood and why, why it's so engaging, emotional. And I think that balance gives you something that is, is what, you know, we were aiming for, I think, all those years ago. Christine, thank you very, very thank much. Thank you. And I hope you will come back to the park to discuss your next set of adventures. Thank you. Thank you.